0: Welcome back to RoshCast for episode 27. This week's episode is apparently sponsored by the Common Cold, which somehow we both have despite it being the middle of summer. Way to go, us. Sad, but true. This week's episode is actually an important episode as it's
1: the first episode of the 2017-2018 academic year. Welcome new
0: interns. Hopefully you'll find RoshCast both useful and entertaining. As always, let's get warmed up with a rapid review. In the last couple of months, we've hit on a few HIV-related questions, so let's start out with a rapid review of HIV-related illnesses. Great idea. This is a group of
1: patients that can come to the ER very ill. At what CD4 count do we become more concerned about reactivated
0: toxoplasmosis? We should be concerned about toxoplasmosis at a CD4 count less than 100. At this stage, patients should be on daily prophylaxis. Of note, toxoplasmosis is rarely seen if the CD4 is above 200. It can be tough to remember
1: these CD4 cutoffs, but it's important for your patients and for your board exams. Jeff, do you remember how toxo
0: is transmitted and what the treatment is? Well, toxo is usually transmitted through cat feces, and you can treat it with primethramine, sulfidazine, and folinic acid. And what's the classic chest x-ray finding for PJP pneumonia? You're thinking of the diffuse interstitial infiltrates in a quote, wing appearance.
1: That's absolutely right, and remember that if the PaO2 is less than 70 or the AA gradient is greater than 35, You should treat with steroids in addition to trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole.
0: Yeah, and this is one of the few instances where an ABG is really necessary and a VBG won't do it. All right, you're up first with the new material. In honor of the beginning of the new academic year, let's start with some core emergency medicine. A 67-year-old man with hypertension and end-stage renal disease presents after an incomplete dialysis session secondary to shortness of breath. His vital signs are a blood pressure of 110 over 95, a heart rate of 65, respiratory rate of 22, temperature of 37.3, with an 0 2 sat of 99% on 2 liters by nasal cannula. You obtain an EKG, which shows a widened QRS, almost resembling a sine wave. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in this patient's management? Is it A, calcium gluconate, B, cardiology consultation, C, defibrillation, or D, transcutaneous pacing?
1: End-stage renal disease, incomplete dialysis, shortness of breath, and a wide QRS. This is definitely hyperkalemia. This should be treated immediately with calcium gluconate. You got all the major clues there, but can you explain
0: why calcium must be given immediately?
1: Sure. Although it's only a temporizing measure, calcium is the most rapid-acting treatment for hyperkalemia. It transiently reverses the
0: cardiac effects of potassium, stabilizing the cardiac membrane. Exactly. Calcium is indicated in all patients with suspected hyperkalemia, especially those with a widened QRS, and unstable dysrhythmia, bradycardia, or hypotension. This patient's EKG, which you should definitely check out because it's a good one, already has a sine wave, which is one of the later findings with hyperkalemia. One of the earliest EKG findings with hyper-K are peak T waves. If not treated, this can progress to drop P waves, a widening of the QRS, which can resemble a sine wave like this guy, and then finally bradycardia and in terminal cases, asystole. Again, we have this EKG up on the blog, so make sure to check that out. Luckily, we have many treatments to help prevent this progression.
1: That's a great segue into the various treatment options. Calcium, given as either calcium gluconate or chloride, provides immediate membrane stabilization as we just said. It lasts for about 30 to 60 minutes. Insulin, which takes effect in about 20 to 30 minutes, shifts potassium intracellularly. That lasts about 4 to 6 hours. Similarly, albuterol upregulates CAMP, thereby shifting the potassium intracellularly also. This takes effect in 15 to 30 minutes and lasts for 2 to 4 hours. Lastly, sodium bicarbonate, that also shifts potassium intracellularly and that takes effect in 5 to 10 minutes and lasts 1 to 2 hours.
0: But don't forget that while all these treatments should be initiated pretty quickly, none are permanent solutions. To permanently eliminate the potassium, you also have a few options. In those who are still able to produce urine, furosemide can be given to increase renal excretion. Furosemide takes effect in about 15 to 30 minutes. Sodium polystyrene is another option. Sodium polystyrene increases GI potassium excretion. It takes effect in about 1 to 4 hours. Keep in mind, however, that the literature on sodium polystyrene is mixed and its role is less clear. It may also result in balaschemia and necrosis, so use it with due caution.
1: And last, of course, is hemodialysis, which immediately removes potassium from the body. In any patient that you're treating for hyperkalemia, you'll want your nephrology colleagues involved early to arrange for hemodialysis. Right,
0: and let me quickly touch on the other answer choices here while you load up the next question. Choice B is incorrect because you should consult nephrology, not cardiology. Although choice C, defibrillation, may be necessary if the patient's rhythm deteriorates to ventricular fibrillation, it's not needed at this time. And lastly, although transcutaneous pacing may be attempted, generally hyperkalemic bradycardia responds very poorly to pacing, so it's not generally recommended. Alright, you're up
1: next. I know you love ambulances, so this is right up your alley. EMS calls notifying you that there is a mass casualty situation. There is an explosion at a construction site, and they'll be bringing 20 ambulatory asymptomatic patients to your emergency department. After checking airway, breathing, and circulation, what test, if normal, would allow you to rapidly discharge patients? Is it A, abdominal ultrasound, B, ophthalmoscope evaluation of the eyes, C, otoscope evaluation of tympanic membranes, or D, the oxygen saturation?
0: I guess the cat's out of the bag on this one. I do love ambulances. In any case, the answer here would be choice C, otoscope evaluation of the tympanic membrane. That's right, but why is that? Choice D, oxygen saturation, sounds pretty appealing too. So this question is asking about a blast injury and the most commonly injured organ in such injuries are the ears, specifically the tympanic membranes. This occurs because the TM sustains damage at lower pressures than any other organ. If the TM exam is unremarkable, patients are at very low risk of having any other occult primary pathology. Getting back to the oxygen saturation though, isn't that pretty essential too? Of course, vitals are vital and all patients need a complete set of vital signs, but this question is asking about minimum testing for discharge, and the oxygen saturation isn't enough. Interestingly, in those with TM rupture, regardless of oxygen saturation, a chest x-ray is warranted and such patients need to be monitored for 6-8 to hours due to delayed pulmonary deterioration.
1: Definitely didn't remember all of that. Aren't blast injuries also broken down into classes?
0: Can you walk us through those? Sure. A primary blast injury refers to tissue damage directly from the blast overpressure. Secondary blast injuries occur due to flying debris. Tertiary blast injuries are injuries caused by the victim being thrown. And lastly, quaternary blast injuries refer to environmental hazards caused by the explosion. Excellent review. Let's move on to the next question. Alright, you're up for this next one. A 42-year-old woman with sickle cell anemia presents to the ED complaining of unilateral knee pain. You're worried she might have septic arthritis. Which of the following organisms is most likely to be responsible? Is it A. Pastorella, B. Pseudomonas, C. Salmonella, or D. Staph aureus? Serious flashback to step exams, but I think I
1: remember this. Septic arthritis in a patient with sickle cell anemia. Although salmonella osteomyelitis might be more common in patients with sickle cell, I don't think that's true for septic arthritis. The
0: correct answer here is probably choice D. Staph aureus. Exactly. Staph is the most commonly cultured organism in acute septic arthritis in adults and children over the age of two. Keep in mind though that Neisseria gonorrhea is the most common pathogen among younger sexually active adults.
1: And although there are no hard and fast rules, I think it's worth reviewing the findings generally seen on arthrocentesis. Normal joint aspirate should have less than 150 white blood cells and be colorless. Inflammatory fluid it typically has a white blood cell count of over 3000 and that may appear yellow in color. In septic arthritis, the white blood cell count is typically over 50,000 and appears purulent. Lastly, a hemorrhagic effusion would have a white blood cell count similar to that of the patient's blood, and it would be red in color with a low viscosity.
0: Nice review, but let me restate that first point one more time for further emphasis. These aren't hard cutoffs. You can still have septic arthritis despite a white blood cell count less than 50,000 on aspiration. When your suspicion is high, don't forget to start antibiotics early, consult ortho, and check a gram stain and culture for the ultimate diagnosis.
1: All great points. You're up again for the next one. In which of the following spondyloarthropathies is uveitis the most common extraarticular manifestation? Is it A, ankylosing spondylitis, B, fibromyalgia, C, psoriatic arthritis, or D, reactive arthritis?
0: tough question, but I'm going to go with choice A, ankylosing spondylitis, since I remember it being one of those seronegative spondyloarthropathies, which have tons of extraarticular symptoms.
1: You're right that ankylosing spondylitis is one of the seronegative spondyloarthropathies. It's also associated with the HLA-B27. Uveitis is the most common extraarticular manifestation, but there are also many others, including inflammatory bowel disease, psoriasis,
0: aortic regurgitation, and restrictive pulmonary disease. Oh, now it's all coming back to me. And specific to ankylosing spondylitis, patients typically have back discomfort with radiographic evidence of sacroiliitis. As the disease progresses, inflammation of the intervertebral disc space eventually leads to a bamboo spine, which can be seen on radiograph as a symmetrical squaring of the margins of the vertebral bodies and eventually fusion of the spine. Choice D, or reactive arthritis, is also worth going over. 44% of ROSH Review users
1: actually picked it. Reactive arthritis, or writers is most commonly found in young men, after an episode of urethritis or dysentery. It's characterized by asymmetric polyarthritis, conjunctivitis and occasional uveitis, and painless oral mucosal lesions that develop into painful ulcers.
0: It's also associated with the HLA-B27 antigen. You can actually use the mnemonic PAIR, as in PAIR, to remember all the HLA-B27-associated diseases. Psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, inflammatory bowel disease, and reactive arthritis. And the treatment is, of course, like most forms of arthritis, NSAIDs and physical therapy. If only there were a magic bullet, our press gainies would be through the roof. Alright, you're up next. At which location is the pediatric airway the narrowest? Is it A, the cricoid, B, the epiglottis, C, the pharynx, or D, the vocal cords?
1: This is one of the key anatomic differences between the pediatric and adult airways. Up to age 8, the pediatric airway is funnel-shaped, with the cricoid cartilage, answer choice A, being the narrowest part of the airway.
0: Nice. And can you list some of the other key differences between the pediatric and adult airways? Sure. In pediatric patients, the larynx
1: is proportionally smaller. It's more anterior and cephalad, and the adenoids are often larger. The epiglottis is also longer and more narrow. The tongue is proportionally larger, and the neck is usually shorter. All of these factors make pediatric intubations
0: difficult. Right, and even if you successfully intubate the pediatric patient, don't forget that the trachea and bronchus are short, which leads to more risk for right mainstem intubation.
1: While we're talking about pediatric intubations, let's go over tube size and placement. Tube size can be approximated by using the fingernail diameter of the fifth digit of the patient. Alternatively, you can refer to the Braslow
0: tape. And for the tube depth, you can use the formula 3 times the endotracheal tube size, or alternatively, you can use the formula age over 2 plus 12. Definitely something we don't review
1: often enough, given what a high-stress situation pediatric intubations usually are. Why don't we do one
0: final question? Alright, here's the last one for this episode. A 29-year-old man presents to the ED with partial thickness burns to his entire back and right arm. The patient weighs 70 kilograms. Based on the Parkland formula, how much crystalloid solution is required in the first 24 hours? Is it A, 1260 mL, B, 10,080 mils, C, 5,040 mils, or D, 7,560 milliliters. So burns to the back represent about 18%
1: of total body surface area, while burns to the arm represent about 9%. The Parkland formula says to multiply the percent of total body surface area burned times the weight in kilograms times 4. So here we would have 27 times 70 times 4, which is 7560 milliliters, or choice D, as the number of milliliters of fluid to give in the first
0: 24 hours. Exactly. You correctly used the rule of nines, which is used to approximate the total body surface area. The rule of nines dictates that the front and the back of the torso each account for about 18% of the total body surface area. Each leg also represents 18%. Each arm and the head are worth 9% of the total body surface area. And lastly, the groin represents about 1%. Remember that the Parkland formula is only used for 2nd and 3rd degree burns, and you give
1: the first half of the fluid over 8 hours and the rest over 16 hours. Keep in mind though that this is just an estimate resuscitation should be guided by following vital signs and urine output. In children, you aim for 1-2 to 2 milliliters per kilogram per hour, whereas in adults, you aim for 30 milliliters per hour.
0: And don't forget about escharotomies for circumferential and full thickness burns and for treating carbon monoxide and cyanide poisoning if the patient has significant smoke inhalation as well. We touched on escharotomies in episode 3 and cyanide toxicity in the last episode, that's number 26, so make sure to listen back if you've forgotten that or want to brush up a little bit. Alright, so that wraps up the new material
1: for episode 27. Let's close out with a rapid review.
0: EKG changes found with hyperkalemia include peak T-waves, QRS widening, drop P-waves, and bradycardia.
1: Temporizing measures for hyperkalemia include calcium, insulin and glucose, sodium bicarbonate, and albuterol. Furosemide and dialysis can be used to permanently remove potassium from the body. For blast injuries, make sure to examine the tympanic membranes. They're damaged at lower
0: pressures than other parts of the body. Primary blast injuries occur from the blast overpressure. Secondary blast injuries are caused by flying debris. Tertiary blast injuries are caused by the victims being thrown. And lastly, quaternary blast injuries are caused by environmental hazards caused by the explosion itself. The most common cause of septic arthritis is staph aureus in adults and
1: children over 2, except for sexually active younger adults in which Neisseria gonorrhea is more common.
0: On joint aspirate of a septic joint, the white blood cell count is typically greater than 50,000 and the aspirate appears purulent. Remember that if clinical suspicion is high, start antibiotics, consult ortho, and defer to the gram-standing culture for definitive diagnosis. The most
1: common extraarticular manifestation of ankylosing spondylitis is uveitis. The narrowest
0: part of the pediatric airway is the cricoid.
1: As compared to the adult airway, the pediatric airway has a proportionally smaller larynx, which is more anterior. The epiglottis is longer and more narrow, the tongue is proportionally larger, the neck is typically shorter, and the adenoids
0: are also often larger. The pediatric endotracheal tube should be placed at a depth of 3 times the endotracheal tube size or at the depth of age over 2 plus 12.
1: Parkland formula can be calculated by multiplying 4 by the percent of the total body surface area burned by the weight in kilograms. Give the first half of the fluid in the first 8 hours and the second half over the next 16 hours.
0: Parkland formula is a good guide, but ultimately fluid resuscitation and burns should be guided by the vital signs in urine output. In children, target one to two cc's per kilogram per hour, and in adults, target 30 cc's per hour. As we close out episode
1: 27, don't forget about the competition that we're running right now. If you hear a trauma ringtone, email us at roshcast at roshreview.com or tweet us at roshcast the exact
0: time of the trauma ringtone, and we'll set you up with the prize. You can also use either of those modalities to give us feedback, request certain questions, ask us to go further into an explanation, or even request new hosts of the podcast with better sounding voices. Thanks for listening and congratulations to the
1: new interns that just started. I know the ED may seem overwhelming at first, but stick with it. Trust us, it gets easier and more rewarding every day. It's definitely a steep learning curve, but well worth it in the end. We'll be back in two weeks with another high yield review.